Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Uh, Remember last time Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, now he's on his way back. All right, and getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth and that it points us to life. We pray, Spirit, would you impress upon our hearts uh, what it is that you want to teach us this morning? Would you shape us as disciples of Christ to be more like him? And would you transform our lives with your authority and power to forgive? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so what do we see here in this passage? We see some friends bringing their friend to Jesus, and they are hoping that Jesus can heal their friend who's paralyzed. But when they get to Jesus, they are surprised because Jesus doesn't give them what they're looking for. Rather, he gives their friend something else, something more important, right? Uh, He looks at him and he says in verse 2, cheer up, take heart, be encouraged, my son, your sins are are forgiven, Uh, which maybe if you were in that situation, you'd be like, "Uh, okay, thanks, but what about my arms and legs? What's going on? I think Jesus is showing us that what you and I think might be our greatest or most important or pressing need in life is not actually what it is. I mean, just think about this man. For years and years and years, he laid down on his mat. He couldn't move. Maybe he couldn't even talk. We don't hear him talk. But for years, he suffered. And he thought, if only I could get my health back. Like, if only I, if I could regain the use of my body. If, if only I could change my situation. If only I was healed. If only I had whatever it is I want, fill in the blank, then my life would be so much better. What is that for you? If only I had a better relationship with my parents, well, then my life would be better. If only my career had panned out differently than it did, my life would be complete. What is it for you? If only I had this, then my life 
would go better. My life would be complete. I wouldn't be in need anymore. Jesus is saying, whatever it is that you fill that answer with, you're mistaken. Even if, Jesus says, even if I gave you those things, even if you got everything you asked for or wanted, at the end of the day, you would still be in need of something. Because at the end of the day, your greatest need is to have a right standing with God. Your greatest need in life is to be forgiven. Do you believe that? Jesus isn't saying, he's not teaching like an old, dualistic, Gnostic view of the world that says the spiritual life is all that matters and the material life and whatever you're going through, well, that's just, that doesn't matter at all. Uh, He's not saying that the hope that we have is to eventually escape from the material world and evacuate to some spirit heavenly place. No, like, in fact, the whole teaching of Scripture, like the whole story of God's redemption ends in the material world being restored. It doesn't end with our souls flying away. The story ends with actually our body and soul reuniting in glory and restoration. So Jesus is not saying, well, the material world doesn't matter. But what he is saying is the most fundamental need that you have in life is a spiritual need. Just just think about it. If this man got his health back, like if he... and and he does, but if that's all he got, and he got up and he walked home and he lived out the rest of his days happy and joyful to have his health back, like someday he's going to die. And may I remind you that someday each one of us will die. And on that day, like it will not matter what your health was like. It, It won't matter what your career was like. It won't matter in the ultimate eternal sense. Jesus is reminding us that fundamentally, at the core of our being, apart from his grace, is the sad truth that we stand in opposition to God, who created us, who formed us in his image, who gave us his law, and called us to obedience, that at the core of our being, apart from his grace, we have rejected that and rebelled against that, and that we stand condemned, guilty of sin. And what we so desperately need in life is to be forgiven. Think about what that shift might do for you. Like, you might think that your biggest problem in life right now is is something that other people have done to you. Like, maybe you think that right now, the biggest obstacle that you're going through in life is the way that your parents treated you, or, or the way that your manager or boss has treated you, 
or the way that your kids have treated you, or your spouse has treated you, or your country has treated you, or your world has treated you. You might think that the greatest problem you feel right now is that on the outside, something has happened against me, and that's why I'm in so much pain and suffering and strife. Jesus is saying, it's not that those things aren't real or affect you, but that fundamentally your greatest need, your greatest need is that you need to be in a right relationship with God. Jesus is saying that your greatest problem is not on the outside, what others have done to you. Your greatest problem is what is on the inside of your heart. Fundamentally, there is something broken inside of us. That is the fundamental cause of the fractured experience that you have in this world. Think of it like an onion. I sound like Shrek. Life is like an onion. Ogres are like onions. Onions have layers. And the more you get down into the middle of the onion, the more you peel back the layers, the stinkier it gets to the core. Like, we have layers to our problems, but at the core of our problem is that we need to be forgiven. We might think that the greatest needs that we have in life are on the outside. Jesus is reminding us that what really needs to be addressed is at the core of your heart, what is at the center of your lives, underneath all the layers. It is so deep within us, like we can't get to it ourselves. That's why we need to go to Jesus, because he's able to really pierce into the core. He's able to peel back those layers and address the fundamental need that we have. It reminds me of a story of a man, a little boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub. You ever heard of that story? C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The whole story, the whole book begins, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it, because that's a terrible name. <laughs> he was a terrible little boy. He was nasty. He was selfish. He was bitter. He was so self-centered. He was dragon-like in his rage and self-centeredness and his greed. I mean, no one enjoyed being around him. And the the main characters of the Narnia series, they take him along on an adventure on the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And along the way, Eustace Scrub finds treasure and his heart wants it so bad almost to the point where he is going to leave his friends for it. And he's so taken up in his self-centered thoughts, his dragon-like behavior, that he goes to the treasure. And if you know the story, he ends up actually becoming a dragon himself. And it's, it's terrible for his companions. They can't deal with it. He learns that he can't deal with it. And he gets to the end of his rope, and he can't solve the problem himself. And then one day, he wakes up and comes back to his friends, and everything has been turned right. And he shares the story of what happens. He says this, well, last night, man, I was more miserable than ever. And that beastly arm bracelet was hurting like anything. That was the the curse. Anyway, I looked up, and I saw the very last thing that I expected to see. There was a huge lion coming towards me. 
And the strange thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was this moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was, I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. And I knew that I had to do it, what it told me to do, so I got up and I followed it. And it led me up this long way up into the mountains, and there was always this moonlight over and around wherever the lion went. So at last, we came to the top of the mountain that I'd never seen before. And on top of this mountain, there was this garden. It was filled with trees and fruit and everything. And in the middle of the garden was this well. I knew it was well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. And it was a lot bigger than most wells. It was a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was clear as anything, and I thought if I could just get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my arm. But the lion told me that I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any of these words out loud or not. I could hear him, though. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress myself because I hadn't had any clothes on. And then I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast off their skin. Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, you know, like it does after an illness or if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and I saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It only means that I have to do it again. So I scratched and tore again. This underskin peeled off beautifully, beautifully, and I stepped out of it left it lying beside the other one, and went down into the well. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many times am I going to have to take this skin off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got the skin off a third time. Just like the others, I stepped out. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. And the lion said to me, but again, I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked off a scab, it hurts like Billy-O, but it's fun to see it coming off. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other times. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it hurt like anything, but only for a moment. 
After that, it became perfectly delicious. As, as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I had turned back into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. He did somehow or other, and in new clothes, the same ones that I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly, I was back here, which, which makes me think that it all must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, you've been undragoned for another. What do you think that was? I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. But who is Aslan? Do you know him? Well, he knows me, said Edmund. He's that great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea, who saved me and saved Narnia. We've all seen him. Lucy sees him most often. And it may be Aslan's country that we are now sailing to. Friends, we have layers upon layers upon layers that we feel like we're trying to take off these problems. But deep down, fundamentally, at the core of who we are, underneath it all, is this fundamental problem that we need forgiveness. We need to be honest about that need. We need to take that need to Jesus. I love that every week we have a confession of sin. Not every church has confessions of sin. And maybe if Story Church is new to you, that's a strange thing that we do. But it's to create this habit, to create a culture, an understanding of I am desperately in need of God's grace. It's a habit of confessing our limitations, our failures, our weaknesses. And I hope that that creates a culture at Story Church, a culture, a community of grace in which we readily share our needs with one another, that we readily share our weaknesses and our failures and our need for forgiveness with one another. I'm so glad that we practice this every week, and I, I hope that we get into that more and more, become a culture, a community in which we understand and confess our greatest need. That's the first thing we see here, that our, our greatest need is for forgiveness. And the second thing that we see in this story is not only that Jesus does forgive, but that his forgiveness has transforming power, right? So this guy encounters Jesus. He's forgiven, but then he goes away changed and transformed, an encounter with Jesus is an encounter with God himself. Like, that's, that's what the scribes are talking about. That's what that discussion is, right? So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then in, in verse 3, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming, right? They're saying, forgiving people's sin is not something that we can do. It's only something that God can do. And Jesus is saying he forgives sin. Like, maybe think of it this way. Let's, let's uh, think that I've got two friends. Uh, I do have two friends, so let's, it's not a big stretch of the imagination. Uh, I've got a friend named Fred and a friend named George. And Fred did something that greatly offended George. 
Uh, maybe he said something that hurt him. Maybe he physically hurt him. Something happened between Fred and George. That there's a division between them. Fred hurt George. Now, I'm friends with both of them. I saw it happen. I know what's going on. But I am not able to go to Fred and say, hey, I saw that you hurt George. I want you to know I forgive you. That doesn't do anything to affect the relationship between Fred and George, right? Because only George can go over to Fred and say, Fred, you hurt me. What you did was wrong, and I forgive you. Like, that is how reconciliation happens, not some third-party person stepping in. And, and so they're like, what is Jesus doing? Only God can forgive sins, because ultimately, all sin is against God. You know, men and women are created in the image of God, and so when we sin against other people, we are, in effect, sinning against God. But Jesus is stepping in and saying, I forgive you. And the scribes know what's happening. They say, you are claiming to do something that is God's prerogative alone. You're a blasphemer. Uh, but they're right. It is God's prerogative alone. And Jesus is saying... And I'm him. I'm God. When you come to me, when you bring your need to me, when you bring your weakness to me, when you bring your sin to me, I have the power and authority to forgive you. An encounter with Jesus is an encounter with God. But that's not the only thing that happens with this encounter, right? Like the story goes on. Verse 4, But Jesus, knowing the thoughts of the scribes, says, why do you think evil things in your heart? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then saying to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And that's exactly what happens. An encounter with Jesus not only enables us to have the forgiveness of sins, but it changes us and transforms us. It restores us. It renews us. It, it radically changes who we are. Like Jesus welcomes us, whoever we are, however we come to him. He, he says, come as you are. And he's committed to working with us to not keep us the way we are. Right? He says, come as you are, but I'm committed so much to you that I'm not going to let you stay the way you are. I, I love what Matt Chandler says uh, is one of his famous quotes. He says, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And what he's talking about is, is it's okay to come to Jesus not okay. In fact, that's the only way you can come to Jesus. But Jesus loves you too much to let you stay like and that he's committing himself to transforming you. So this paralytic man who had no power to change his own life, he experienced the mercy of God, not only in the forgiveness of his sins, but also in his life being transformed. God loves you too much to let you stay the way you are when you come to him. He's committed to your transformation. I love what Paul says in Philippians he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
Like that's, that is the life of discipleship. He who began a good work in you, once you come to Jesus, you experience his mercy and grace and his forgiveness, but that work that he's begun in you, he will see it out. He will complete it in you. I mean, it's like if you've got a, a, a marathon that you're training for, right? You begin to work at it. You sign up for it. It's many months away, and you said, hey, I might not be in the best shape right now, but I'm committing to working on it and training and practicing and stretching and getting stronger. There might be setbacks. There might be struggles along the way. I might miss a workout or two, but I'm working towards that finish line. Well, it's so much better than that because he's saying, I will carry you from the start to the end. I am committed to you. Friends, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is not just like the beginning of the Christian life that says, come to me and you're saved. The gospel says, come to me and I commit myself to you. It's the whole life of discipleship. Chandler's quote, he goes on, he says, if you create an environment, a church community, where it's okay not to be okay, then you are creating an environment where the gospel is breathed in and out constantly. The gospel reminds us, come to him with your failures. He forgives you, and he commits to being with you through his spirit to strengthen you and grow inside of you. He's committed to you. So what part of your life, what part of your story, what part of your sin, what part of your pain and suffering is he working on? What part of your life are you saying, I know it's not the end because this is not the way it's supposed to be, but God has committed himself to working on me, and he's working on me. What is that? I, I love what our confession says about sanctification. It says that sanctification is this ongoing work of God's grace, whereby we are being renewed day by day in our whole being after the image of God into his perfect righteousness and holiness. It is a daily enabling more and more to die to our sin and to live into that righteousness. Friends, that is what an encounter with Jesus is. It's not just coming to him and receiving forgiveness. It's coming to him and receiving his work, his commitment to you to transform your life, to change you, into his likeness. That's the second thing we see here. The third final thing is not only do we see um, the greatest need that we have, not only do we see this transforming power of Jesus, but we also see his generous grace. His generous grace, his abundant love. Why does Jesus do this to the paralytic man? We don't know anything about him. And we don't, these guys come in real quick. Matthew doesn't even tell us the whole story. Why is Jesus doing this? It's almost like Jesus is actually the background character in this story. The friends certainly are the heroes. The paralytic man's the main character. The scribes are the antagonists. Jesus is kind of in the background. But I think that there's more going on in the background than, than what we see. Um, I, I'm indebted to Tim Keller for making this observation. I didn't see it until I heard him talk about it, and so I want to show it to you too. When you heard this story, did you find it strange 
that Jesus is ready and willing to pronounce forgiveness on this man when we didn't hear a single thing from him? Like the pattern of Scripture, the pattern of the gracious God of creation forgiving people is express faith in him, have repentance away from your sin and turn to him, and he'll forgive. Like it, it is free, it is grace, it is his mercy, but it is in response to faith. But we don't hear the paralytic say anything. I think the, the key to understanding this uh, is, is in the discussion with the scribes. Jesus says, in, or Matthew says in verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he knew their thoughts, and then says to them, why are you thinking evil things in your heart? Jesus doesn't need to hear people talk. He knows their thoughts. He knows their hearts. The scribes are thinking something evil. But if that is the Jesus in this scene, then Jesus knows the heart and the thoughts of the paralytic man. And so we don't know, but somehow, somehow Jesus looked at the paralytic and saw in him, heard in him a small, imperfect, fallible, weak, unremarkable, flawed, and faint faith that this man, Jesus, can help me. And Jesus was all too eager to grasp that small, faint, flawed, fallible faith. It's like he's sitting at the edge of his seat just saying, come on, I'm ready. Do you want it? It's like he's itching to love. His love is so eager to help you. He's so ready and generous with his grace. He just wants to give it out. Like that is Jesus. That is his heart. And just at the end of chapter 9, we're going to read that he looks out over Jerusalem and has compassion over them because they're lost. We'll hear stories of Jesus going to Mary and Martha when their brother dies and Jesus weeps. He's filled with love. A, a, a deaf man comes to him for healing. And Jesus pulls him aside away from the crowd. He doesn't want to make a spectacle of it. And he takes his hands and he puts his on his ears. And he looks at him and he prays for him. He says, be opened. He didn't have to do that. We know already that Jesus can just say a word. He doesn't even have to say a word and he can do it. But Jesus is so full of love and compassion. Remember the story of Jesus raising the little girl up from the dead, Talitha? She's, she's dead in her room, and the family are all mourning and crying, and Jesus comes, and he says, let me see her. Everyone out. And he's sitting on her bedside with her mom and her dad. And she's laying in bed, and he looks at her. He holds her hand and says, Talitha, Kumi, which means, little girl, it's time to get up. I mean, it's just like any father in here going to their kid in the morning. The sun's out, you're going to have a good day. It's time to get up. 
Jesus is so full of compassion and love and grace. He doesn't wait for us to have it all together. He doesn't wait for us to have strong faith. No, he latches on even to small, unremarkable, flawed, and fainting faith and says, I'm ready. I want to heal you. Do you know that love? Do you know that depth of God's love for you? It is abundant. It is generous. And he is eager and ready to forgive you. He's eager and ready to transform you. He's eager and ready to work his power towards you because he loves you. Do you know just how much he loves you? I love reading books to my kids. And one of their favorite books and one of my favorite books, maybe you know this, Guess How Much I Love You. I'm going to read it. It's not just for kids. I think it's for us too. Story about two hares, two rabbits, two bunnies, father and a son. Little nut brown hare who was going to bed held on tight to big nut brown hare's very long ears. He wanted to be sure that big nut brown hare was listening. Guess how much I love you, he said. Oh, I don't think I could guess that, said big nut brown hare. This much said Little Nut Brown Hare, stretching out his arms as wide as they could go. But Big Nut Brown Hare had even longer arms, but I love you this much. Hmm, that is a lot, thought Little Nut Brown Hare. I love you as high as I can reach, said Little Nut Brown Hare. I love you as high as I can reach, said Big Nut Brown Hare. That is very high, thought Little Nut Brown Hare. I wish I had arms like that. Then little nut brown hare had a good idea. He tumbled upside down and reached up the tree trunk with his feet. I love you all the way up to my toes, he said. And I love you all the way up to your toes, said big nut brown hare, swinging him up over his head. I love you as high as I can hop, laughed little nut brown hare, bouncing up and down. But I love you as high as I can hop, smiled big nut brown hare. And he hopped so high that his ears touched the branches above. That's good hopping, thought Little Nut Brown Hare. I wish I could hop like that. I love you all the way down the lane as far as the river, cried Little Nut Brown Hare. I love you across the river and over the hills, said Big Nut Brown Hare. That's very far, thought Little Nut Brown Hare. He was almost too sleepy to think anymore. Then he looked around beyond the thorn bushes out into the big, dark night. Nothing could be farther than the sky. I love you right up to the moon, he said, and closed his eyes. Oh, that's far, thought Big Nut Brown Hare. That's very, very far. Big Nut Brown Hare settled Little Nut Brown Hare into his bed of leaves, leaned over, kissed him goodnight, and he lay down close by, whispered with a smile, I love you right up to the moon and back. Friends, do you know the love of God? Paul wishes that we would know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God towards us in Christ Jesus. 
He has demonstrated that love for us in sending his own son to die for you. He's ready to forgive you. He's eager to transform you. Would you go to him and experience his power? Let's pray.